Founder Space Startup Supercharge. I'm Captain Hawk, CEO of Founder Space, the leading global startup accelerator. I'm also author of the award-winning books Make Elephants Fly, Surviving a Startup, and The Five Horses. Welcome to the Founder Space Podcast. I am Captain Hoff, and I am here today with Matt Confer, VP of Strategy at Ability. Matt is an amazing guy. He teaches leadership. He also has an incredible TED Talk. If you haven't heard of it already, I'll let Matt talk about it. Has over 300,000 views on YouTube. So Matt, we're going to talk today about leadership, what entrepreneurs can learn from you. But why don't you start off talking about your TED Talk? Well, thanks. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. So I had the opportunity in 2019 um, to give a, a TEDx talk uh, in the Texas area all about decision making. So as you mentioned in the introduction, our firm does um, leadership development training on a lot of topics, one of them being decision making. Um, and I connected with the TED organizers and they asked me to put together a talk. It was an arduous process, uh, one of the ones that I, I look back on fondly. Um, and thankfully, the, the talk was uh, well received. That's fantastic. Because you piqued our interest, can you give us a few nuggets about decision-making that really resonated with people who viewed your talk? Well, when, when we've looked at it as an organization, um, one of the things that we found time and time again is having a framework in place is extremely powerful. And there are tons of frameworks out there. You could you could Google decision-making frameworks and, and spend an afternoon or, or a whole week diving into all of the different frameworks. And I think what's powerful is having a few in your back pocket, kind of a toolkit of decision-making frameworks. And so we as a team uh, work together with some of our clients and put together a three-step decision-making framework. And that that's why... Um, I called the talk before you decide because what we found out is a lot of effective decisions happen well before you actually make the decision. It's about the lead-in, it's about the process, and it's about what you put in place um, to make an effective decision. So give us an example of a framework, a simple framework that people would use. Yeah, the framework that we put together was three steps. So step number one was challenge the constraints. And the reason that we started there was because many times when you're making a decision, the uh, instinct is to just jump into the decision. You you have a problem in, in front of you and you just want to make a decision. And you have this really wonderful opportunity um, at the beginning of the process to, to take a step back, a massive step back, do the quintessential you know, 20,000 foot view. What are the constraints that are holding you back from a big breakthrough? And starting there as the first step uh, is exceptionally powerful. The second step in the process was called um, embrace a pre-mortem. And the reason is because we're all so familiar with this concept of a post-mortem, where you, you dive in, you, you do all the due diligence, you make a decision, and then you spend all of this time at the end saying, you know, what the heck went wrong or what the heck went right? What we don't do a lot of times is at the onset, we actually think, well, what could go wrong? Or if this is an unmitigated failure, why is it going to be an unmitigated failure? And so anytime you're making an important decision, running a pre-mortem, especially after challenging the constraints, is extremely powerful. And that, the final that is well, let me stop you there. That yeah, is go for it. Right. I love that. You know, what are all the things when we make the decision that could turn out to be a, a disaster? And then analyzing those, and then that will force you to actually figure out how to mitigate those in advance of making that decision. And when you talk about constraints, before we go to the third one, give us some example of constraints that you would have making a decision. 
Yeah, so I don't want to take too much from the actual talk, but I, I gave this example of a, a, a class at a university, and um, it was a class on entrepreneurship, and the uh, the facilitator or the, the professor uh, did this project where they gave every group an envelope uh, with $5 in the envelope, and she said, basically, you know, you have to create a company uh, with this $5, and you have to make the most money possible, and we're going to give you a time frame to do it, and, and all of these, uh, and then at the end of the experience, you have to get in front of your whole class. You have to tell them what you did. And everybody thinks about, you know, what would you do if given the same challenge? And the thing that I talked about on the stage is what the winning team did um, is the winning team didn't even use the $5 in the envelope. They didn't buy anything. They didn't create anything. All they did was they went around and they sold the rights to their presentation. So they were at this prestigious university and they went around to companies in the area and said, would you want to present your company to a bunch of highly motivated individuals? And what would you pay us for that right? And they made a lot of money. They completely challenged the constraints of the exercise. The constraint was that $5 in the envelope. And I think we have constraints around us all the time that we don't even view as things that we could break through or things that we could you know, go against. You have to take that step back before you ever think about what decision you're going to make. Oh, fantastic example. Now, number three, what's, what's the third one? Yeah, so number three was check the basics. And the reason was I am just, we get to work with some incredible uh, global organizations. I'm blown away by how many people do these you know, big models or they have these grandiose projections of what they want to do. And it's a small mistake that, that trips them up at the end. So when decision-making gets more complex, you're more likely to get tripped up by a small or insignificant detail. So when you're on the doorstep of making a decision, you have to check the basics. And I, I give an example on the stage about a NASA mission um, that went horribly wrong because of a basic like a really small detail. And I'll force you to watch the talk if you want to find out about it. But basically, even rocket scientists get this wrong every once in a while. So you have to check the basics when you're finalizing a decision. Great advice. Now let's dive into leadership in general. So you do this every day, all day long. You teach leadership. What are some, how do you go about it? And what are some of the things our entrepreneurs can learn from you? Yeah, so we're a, we're a gamification company. So we believe firmly in the idea of real world practice. So I think the thing that I can, can impart on people is anything that you can do on your teams to give the leaders that might be, you know, future leaders at your organization, real world practice. So yes, simulations are a wonderful thing. I, I love it. I'm committed my, my life and my professional world to it, but you can also do, you can do role plays. You can put people into real world scenarios during your coaching or during your mentor sessions, and you can see how people respond to real challenges. Sometimes we, we call it, you know, rip headlines from the Wall Street Journal and ask people how they would perform if they were the leader, you know, thrust into the challenge and talk to them about how they would do it, how you would do it and, and try to teach them through real world practice. I like this idea and I'll tell you why. Number one is if you go to things that they're actually doing, uh, mistakes that they have made in their leadership, problems they've had with their leadership, challenges they face, people tend to become defensive because mm -hmm. it's all, they think it's all about me, right? You know, you're criticizing me if you're trying, even though you're trying to teach them, like in this situation, you you shouldn't have done this. You should have, what other things should have you done, right? You're trying to coach them, but they get defensive because they feel like it's all about judging who they are. Mm -hmm. But by taking a 
thing, you know, a headline out of the Wall Street Journal or some fictitious situation, which is really tough and challenging. You can drive the same points home, but it's not them. It's somebody mm -hmm. else's problem. They can be more objective and then they can start to see, oh, wow, I should have, if I'm saying I should do this in this situation, we have an analogous situation. I should actually apply those rules to my life. Is that, that, that type of thinking is what you're going for? Yeah, the question we get most frequently is why don't your games and your simulations look more like the real world? They're fictitious companies in fictitious industries. And the reason is exactly what you hit on. You get outside of yourself, your true leadership, like uh, belief and behaviors come through in a fictitious environment. And you get to actually see in real time how you default what your I have a colleague who calls it a pressure cooker for your true um, leadership uh, kind of behaviors. And that's what's powerful as a leader is to look at that and say, what do I want to do differently um, and not feel criticized, actually just feel like you have kind of a laboratory to practice. Right. Because it's a game. It's a yeah. game you're, you're running. If you make a mistake, it's just a game you're making a mm -hmm. mistake on so you can fix it. And that's a great way of doing it. Uh, it takes the ego out of it and gives exactly. people a more objective way of viewing their decisions. The other thing I really like is that you're role playing, that you are taking uh, act, uh, scenarios, even though they're fictitious, people are at, are taking them very seriously and they're acting as if they were real. So uh, doing this role-playing instead of just reading it out of a book, because we can all read leadership books. <laughs> There's a gazillion leadership books out there and we kind of get the advice, we process it, we say that makes sense. and But then we don't, because we didn't apply it to a real world situation that we were actually acting through, we don't, we don't actually internalize it to our business. I, I think growth is about bridging the gap between theory and into practice. Like, how do you take a theory that you've, I, I started my career at Deloitte consulting and I struggled a lot when I first made manager. And I think part of the reason is you default to what got you there. You don't have the opportunity to try a new way of doing something because you're petrified. You're dealing with real people. You don't want to screw up somebody's life or somebody's career, but there's potentially a way better way for you to be a manager. And the only way you're ever going to try that is if you have a safe environment to practice. So I think leaders and executives at organizations, when you can give people an opportunity to practice, they can potentially stretch their comfortable limits and become better leaders as a result of it. Yes. So now that we kind of laid out that framework, so we're going to do these simulations, walk us through a typical simulation and what an entrepreneur could learn if they were in that. Yeah, so we have a simulation that's all about people management, which I think is the one thing that that a lot of people uh, struggle with. So in the game, you manage these six character archetypes, and uh, they all uh, are mapped to the major personality profile. So each of these characters has a Myers Briggs profile, and they have you know a Hogan assessment done on them. And basically, the the characters it's kind of a choose your own adventure type of game. So if you decide to coach a character, they might send you a real time Slack message or an email, you know giving you feedback about why they felt like this was a good use of their time or a bad use of their time. And their entire perspective or the entire belief uh, that our company goes to market with is you need to manage people based on what motivates them, based on what makes them excited to come to work in the morning or what they want to get out of their job. And the best way to do that is have six fictitious people who are all motivated by very different things. And you need to uncover what it is that motivates them. And then during the debriefs of the experience, talk about why you're approaching each person in the game differently based on what they've told you or what the avatars in the game have told you. I've never tried anything like this. It's fascinating. So yeah. I can 
can imagine doing it. Now, when you run these simulations, is it a computer program with an AI? Are they real people, uh, the uh, employees of your company acting out the roles? How do you do it? Do you do it in person? Do you do it online? Get, kind of lay it out. Yeah. So one of the fascinating things that happened to us during the pandemic is we had offered our simulations as in-person experiences and fully virtual experiences um, going back to about 2017. Um, but about 70% of clients that we worked with chose to do them in person, you know, at a company offsite or at a training at a headquarters. And we do a lot of work globally. And in about February of 2020, we had some simulations planned for Southeast Asia. And so we were made well aware of COVID before it was kind of front page news everywhere. And so we pivoted all of our solutions to fully virtual. And thankfully, we had been practicing that for about a year and a half. So it ended up working well for our organization. But the gameplay is with avatars. So it's virtual characters, but you're playing with real people from your company. So if you and I were at the same company, you and I would be managing six characters, but we would be competing with other teams from our company who are also managing the six characters. So the gameplay is actually with your computer and with avatars on the screen, but your partners in the experience are all real world employees at your company. So we frequently find ourselves in a new manager program at a fortune 500 company or a you know high potential development program so you might be in a group with 40 other leaders at your organization so let me get this right so when you say avatars there's two types of are the avatars controlled by an employee at my company are they controlled AI. by an AI. Okay. AI. Yep. Okay. So they're fully AI avatars that I'm interacting with. So you have to have a pretty sophisticated AI there for me to be able to converse with them and actually find out their underlying intentions and what motivates them and everything else. Yeah. So thankfully, and I'll keep going with the management um, simulation. We have a couple of other ones, but the in the management one, based on the decisions that you make in the game, they, the avatar send you one of two, one of three things, basically. They either send you these little pop-up messages that, that come through in a Slack kind of instant messenger interface, or they send you more long form messages, or they send you a video message that are pre-recorded. So they're not people on the other side of the screen. They're all pre-recorded. But that's why I sometimes talk about it in a choose-your-own-adventure way. Because if you're going through this experience with a partner at your company, and there's 38 other people at your company, everybody's making different decisions with these characters. You know, who to coach, who to assign to what projects. So they're all getting different feedback. And then during the debriefs, you're saying, you know, one of the characters in the game, her name is Tamika. And you're saying, you know, why did you approach Tamika that way? And why did this team approach Tamika so differently? And hearing from leaders why they did what they did is where a lot of the real learning takes place. Ah, that's great. So it's it's after they go through the simulation and when you start to unravel it yeah. and, and get to what was in people's heads, their different management styles, the decision-making, then in, in during that process, you must have one of you, like your coaches in there the entire time. The coaches, they review everything the people did with the avatars, and then they go into that debriefing session. 
Is that yeah, how it thank, works? Yeah, thankfully, I'm not in charge of the technological design, but we have incredible technological designers. So the game updates in real time, and we have about 90 or so facilitators around the world who are always teaching our simulations with some of our partner clients. And you're exactly right. At the end of every round, um, they are debriefing the experience. And so over the course of a six to eight hour total curriculum, you might play five to seven rounds and then have, as a result, five or seven debriefs about what went on. And that's where the, the lessons, but also the learning takes place. Oh, that's fascinating. Now let's dive into what our entrepreneurs could learn. Like, so what are some of the things that people walk away that really lights them up? They're like, oh my God, I was doing things totally wrong in my management. Yeah. So one of the interesting things about the people management game is the game has this little engagement meter. So your character's engagement changes over time based on the decisions that you make. And when I've had the pleasure of facilitating one of the experiences, I walked around the room when we were doing it in person and there was this, this individual who was drawing engagement meters, but I didn't recognize the names of the characters because they weren't the names in the game. And I asked this individual what she was doing and she said, I'm drawing engagement meters for everybody on my team because that's the part that is really reflective of this game is that I I'm trying to think about is this person on my team an 80% engaged or a 40% engaged and I think the lesson that I took out of that that we teach a lot is you have to really think on a week-to-week -week basis, how engaged are the people on your team? Are they getting out of this experience that we call work what you think they want out of this experience? And I think you need two things to make that decision. One, you need to know what motivates the people on your team. So if I asked you to write down, what are the three things that motivate the six people that I work with on a daily basis or I manage, would you be able to do it? And if you can't, what sort of conversations do you need to have with the people on the team to make sure you can get there? And then I think the second part of the question is, how excited or how satisfied do you think they are given that's what motivates them to come? And what over the next couple of months could you do as a manager to make sure you're getting them closer to that ideal state? And in our game, it looks like an engagement meter. You know, you're either green, you're yellow, or you're red on a certain percentage, but you need to figure out as a manager what that's going to look like in the real world. So- you know, a lot of people, a lot of bosses, they think it's not my job to motivate the employee. The mm -hmm. employee needs to be internally motivated in order to succeed. Because, you know, I can spend all my time trying to motivate somebody who's just lazy. <laughs> they're, not, they're not motivated or they or they don't have, they, they don't like their job. They're not, you know, they're not totally into it. They're doing their job because they need a paycheck, but it's not like anything I say is going to motivate them. What do you say to people like that? I say I'd reframe it slightly. I don't think it's your job to motivate them, but I think it's your job to understand what motivates them. And I think you're going to have some people on your team who their motivation is entirely about climbing the corporate ladder. You know, they want to be at another level two years from now and another level 10 years from now. And that is what gets them going. For some employees, it is a paycheck. It is just to check the box, to get the job done. For others, it's the satisfaction of the type of work that we do. So I don't necessarily think it's your job to motivate them. I think successful managers have a level that they're able to get their team excited. But what is your job is to understand what motivates them and understand and appreciate that it's different for everybody on your team. I think that's critical to be an effective manager. So let's say you start to understand what 
motivates your team, whether it's just to get through the week and bring home a paycheck or whether it rides the corporate ladder or you know, they love their work and they're totally you know, engaged in their work and they just want to focus on that. Let's say you, you find out or it's the people in the office that motivate mm -hmm. them, you know, just at the socialization, whatever it is, you find that out. What are things you can do to improve uh, their productivity, to improve uh, their engagement and to uh, you know, take the company in the right direction? So let's say hypothetically you you manage four individuals. My question to you would be: Do you have the same check in with those four individuals on a weekly basis, a biannual basis, a monthly basis? However often you check in, my guess is that most managers say, "Yeah, I have six people on my team. I meet with them all biweekly. It's a fifteen minute call, and we do goal setting on an annual basis." That's great. Is it really likely that all six of the people on your team exactly like to be managed that way? And to me, what makes what makes you a better manager is for you to say, or here's the big thing, have a conversation with the people on your team and ask them if it's currently working for them in that way. I think one, you might be able to change it. Maybe this person is like, you know, meeting for 15 minutes every week is just honestly too much. I'd rather meet for 45 minutes every three weeks. Like that would be perfect. That would align with my schedule and you can make that happen. I think if you never have the conversation or you never think like, should I really be managing all six of these people who are motivated by very different things exactly the same way? And I just have my checklist every two weeks that I do. That's something that I don't think enough managers think about. Yeah, that's good because, you know, cookie cutter management where you're treating all your employees as identical is not the way to go. So you're yeah. saying you need to individually understand them at a much deeper level, and then how to communicate with them and, and what, what ways, what formats people like to be communicated with. You know, some people with, in today's world, I would imagine would like, to, you know, more casual communications over Slack or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever instant messaging you use more often uh, throughout the week, checking in, hey, how's things going? Do you have everything you need? Uh, really quick communicate, because that's how most people communicate these days. Others would want longer communications, and then also uh, the topics of the communication. So when we communicate with people as a manager, what, how, what's the best way to communicate with them? What, what questions should you be asking? What should you be going? I mean, you can't every week for 15 minutes be asking, what are your goals? Are your goals being met? <laughs> you know, you can't do that over, they're going to get bored of that, you know? So how do you, how should managers do it? I think you have to say, you have to, I find leading with um, honesty is the best way to go about it. Sometimes I've found that I'm the most successful when I say, I don't know what the right answer is here. Or there are many ways we could tackle this. And I want this to be a collaborative task. Like I want us to figure out what would work best for you. And so um, you're right. In 15 minutes, you probably can't do goals. But in 15 minutes, you can say, at some point over the next six months, we're going to have to set goals. And then at some point over the six months after that, we're going to have to set goals again. How would you like the process to go? And if they have no idea, you could say, here are three ways I've done it in the past, A, B, or C, which would work better for you. To me, successful management is more about opening up the lines of communication and showing a level of honesty of that. I don't know the right way to do this, or I might not have all the answers, but I want this to be a collaboration. So yeah, good point. So asking them, bringing them into the process, making them uh, make a decision about the process so then they feel invested in it. It's not you managing them. It's you manage, it's you and them working together, collaborating mm -hmm. with, with them. And here's something I think of, you know, a really good manager 
uh, would ask them, how do you like to be managed? Right? What, what management style do you like? Do you want me to be checking in all the time? Do you want uh, more occasional check-ins? What do you need to, uh, in order to do your job yep. and reach the goals you know we have to reach for our business? Now, when, uh, when setting goals, a lot of times, do you recommend that the employee set their own goals or that the manager set the goals for them? Or how do you recommend uh, they discuss this if they set it jointly, the goals? How do you recommend they come to goals? Because a lot of times the employee may sandbag. They may like make the goals <laughs> less you know, hard to reach because they know, wow, if I set really high goals, I'm going to have to reach them. How do you deal with that? I think there needs to be some give and take. I think there needs to be some goals that are, these are the benchmarks that we have to hit, or I'm going to set these, but I don't want these to be the only three goals that we look at at the end of the year. I want there to be some interaction between us. One of the central tenets that I have is if you do a better job of involving them, you get a little bit of leeway when there are some things that there can't be involvement. Like there are some things that have to be dictated from management or the executives or the company more broadly, where there isn't going to be any say from the employee. And that's just going to happen. But I think you get that leeway to say, that's okay. That makes me feel like I still have a good relationship with my employer and the company more broadly, if you give them input in other ways. So if there are three company goals or department goals that you just have to hit this year, that's great. But you should also have two goals that are collaborative with here are some things that you want to grow your career here at this company that might have nothing to do with the you know hard and fast company goals. Now, let's say you go to your employees and you, you set a goal uh, with them or for them. You know that, the, let's say it's a software product. We need to get the next release out. We need to have a new release coming out every three weeks. Like this, we, I want this as a goal. We, we don't want to take longer. And they say, they come back to you and say, no, I, I can't commit to that. I, I don't know if we can get it done every three weeks or I, uh, this, you know, this isn't something that I want to commit to. How do you deal with that situation? I think those are the hard ones. Those are the ones where you kind of have to say, is it just because three weeks isn't the right amount of time? Like, can you give me the argument for why it should be four or five weeks? And can we work collaboratively to say, you know, we're the, the company is pressuring me and us for three. You think the better option is five. What could we get you from a help perspective to get it to four? So I can go back to the company and give a little bit, but we can go to you and say, you know, maybe five is too much, but four is the right answer. I, I do think the give and take helps a lot. And I do a lot of negotiations for our company. I, I find negotiations fascinating. You end up sometimes meeting in the middle, but you have to have a rationale for why you met in the middle. So sometimes when a pushback happens, I think it's more about figuring out what is the blocker to getting it done in three weeks? Why do they think five weeks is the exact time that it would get done? And maybe what do we need to do to get it done in three? Or what do we need to do to compromise at four? So you talk compromise. Now, I want to throw something at you. Yep. What about the management style of these icons like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, where they don't really, their management style is not to go, go and try to figure out the, the person's motivation and, you know, get them to buy into, you know, compromise on a four week, five week, whatever it is. Their thing is, I need it done in one week and you mm -hmm. better get it done. If it's, you, I don't care how, you're going to get it done. So what do you say to that management style and how does that fit with your, your teaching? I 
I think what I say to that is the vast majority of clients who come to us, which are, are pretty well-known organizations, very few, if any of them, are striving for that. What they're striving for is the ideal state that is a little bit more kumbaya, perfect, like harmony. And so we do whatever we can to make it so in an ideal state, you are an effective manager who cares about motivations, who gets the job done, who does everything. But we don't operate in this idealized fantasy world that it doesn't, there aren't time pressures. Um, in one of our games, you have these three capacity tokens that every quarter in the game, you can use the three capacity tokens of the virtual characters. And if you overwork the characters time and time again, their engagement goes into the red and they could be hired away by the other teams in the game, um, which is a fun dynamic. However, the AI is built so that you can, quote unquote, overwork the employees once or twice in the game, and they won't automatically jump into the red. And the perspective there is, we all are aware that sometimes during high burn times or heavy deadline times, I might have to work above and beyond. And if you're a manager that can convey that in a collaboration focus on the future, the, our game will kind of let you get away with that. But if every quarter in the game, you're just overworking your employees, they will leave your company. And I think that's one of the things we're trying to teach as well. Okay, that's great. Good answer too, to a tough question. So, you know, there are some managers out there and I guess they have to have the charisma for it, like Steve Jobs or Elon <laughs> Musk, where they can literally do a reality distortion and make people work insane hours for insane periods of time just because they say so. But most managers aren't, you know, aren't able to do that. Let me uh, dive into something. So it have you experimented with creating scenarios where managers don't interact with an AI avatar, but instead they interact with their real employees, but in fictional situations. We, we have not. Um, what we do find, though, is a lot of clients who use our simulations, we are but one part of a larger program where they might integrate something like that, like a role play with their team or interactions with an executive coach where the rest of the team is present. So that's not a space that we play in, but I can say confidently that that's something that we've seen clients use successfully outside of the work that we do. Okay, so that's another way to do it. So your, yours is... A uh, different way. Yours, uh, the yours is really focused on the manager and not the employees. So you are training Correct. the managers. In the other situation, it would be like a group thing where you're training both the managers and the employees how to communicate with each other. So a different yeah. aspect to solving the uh, the same problem, and probably both work well in different situations. Now, um, are there other before we, you know, this has been super interesting. I, I would love to try out your simulation sometime. It just sounds fascinating just to try it out, learn about myself. Am I a good manager? I'm sure I can improve. I'm sure there's a lot I can learn. Um, can you tell me, uh, a, a, you know, before we wrap up, a few more tips that just light people up, that, that entrepreneurs uh, can learn, uh, can take away for their management style? Uh, the, the one that, that resonates the, the most with me is um, we have a simulation that's less focused on management. It's more focused on decision making. And it's a little bit more ambiguous what the right strategy is. And, and the game kicks off with a strategy session where you and your team get together and you're kind of, you've had all this information thrown at you. You don't really know exactly where to go. It's kind of the epitome of like a new project sprint with your team. And so we go through the first round and then we do this debrief where we ask, we say, think back to that strategy 
strategy session and think about how much time you spent thinking about the how, the how we're going to do things as a team, how we're going to make decisions, how we're going to deal with dissent, how we're going to deal with disagreement versus how much time did you spend on the what, what we're going to do, what products we're going to produce, what price we're going to charge for them. And almost like without a doubt, every team says we basically spent 90 to 95 to 100 percent of the time about the what, like the what are we going to do? That's super exciting to teams when they kick off and very little time on the how, how we're going to operate as a team, how we're going to deal with disagreement. So my resounding thing to close is when you're starting out on a new project or when you're thinking about how your team works, how much time do you spend on the how, the how you operate as a team, the how you structure the meetings, the how you deal when there's disagreement? I think you can really level up how you are as a team when you think more about the how versus the what we're actually going to do, what product we're going to produce, what deadline we're going to hit, what price we're going to charge, all of those what questions. You Focus are absolutely right. Yeah. You know, most meetings I'm in, it's all about the what, you know, yeah. nobody's talking about the how they figure the how just happens, but mm -hmm. it doesn't just happen because it can happen in many different ways. And, and if you structure those, like if we don't agree on certain things, then how do we handle it? You know, people just don't think about it. They end up disagreeing and then there's no, there's, it gets messy, right? Yep. You know, certain people are upset. There was no process for going through that, you know, yeah. Uh, something goes off track, you know, you know, how do we deal if, if the, uh, the engineer is late, like, uh, or if, if the product is late, how do we deal with that? They don't, they don't think about that. They think of what is the deadline <laughs> and, and not what happens or, and how you deal with it if that deadline doesn't work out. So this really, really good advice all throughout. Thank you so much, Matthew. Now, can you tell our audience, because I'm sure they're as curious as I am, how they can reach you and find out more about Ability? No, thank you. I've really appreciated it. So um, I'm pretty active on, on LinkedIn and, and Twitter. So you can find me there from a company perspective. Um, our name is Ability. That is A-B-I-L-I-T-I-E. So it's spelled a little bit different, but you can search Ability Leadership Development and you will find all of our offerings and can get in touch there. And if you're interested in the TED Talk, the TED Talk was called Before You Decide. And you can just search my name and, and that and you will find that. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you liked it, hit the subscribe button and share it with your friends. You can help us create more great content by subscribing and sharing. Also, if you want to access our online startup program, our investor network, and our entrepreneur resources, just come to founderspace.com.